Hello, everybody, and welcome to the week six edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Can you believe it's week six already? This season is moving quickly. This is Cowboys week, so we'll talk some Cowboys with my good friend Gary Myers, author of How About Them Cowboys and really entertaining look at America's team. And he's going to join us in the second quarter to share some behind-the-scenes stories. Gary knows Jerry Jones really, really well, and he was granted some incredible access for his book, and I promise you'll enjoy it. For now, let's talk about the Jets, the 0-4 Jets. Wow, this offense is really hard on the eyes. Uh, only two touchdowns in four games, and one of them was a, a one-play 19-yard drive with the end around against the Eagles. The Jets have what some scouts will call an uphill offense because it always seems like they're going uphill. Some teams go downhill, the Jets are going uphill. You know, not once against the Eagles did I actually think they were a threat to score, not even when they got the ball at the 19 after the muffed punt. But this is this is probably, no, I would, I would say it is the worst offensive stretch that I've ever seen covering the Jets. They had a stretch in 93 when Bruce Coslett was the coach, where they went two or three games without a touchdown. But this is just, this is tough. Uh, I'm done with Luke Falk. I don't want to see him anymore playing quarterback, and I, and I don't think you will because the Jets announced on Tuesday that Sam Darnold has been medically cleared. He will start against the Cowboys. That is good news for the Jets. Look, to me, this puts the pressure on Adam Gase now. Uh, the old third-string quarterback alibi doesn't work anymore. He's got Darnold back. He's getting Chris Herndon back from his four-game suspension. So that'll help. The Jets actually have the fewest, and I know this is not going to shock anyone, but they actually have the fewest tight end receptions in the league to this point. Herndon will help that. And so, look, don't expect the Jets to go from, you know, zero to 60 in one week here. This is, this is going to be a process with Darnold, who is going to be rusty. I mean, do not expect to see vintage Sam Darnold. We don't even know what vintage Sam Darnold is. This is only, what, his 15th career start. So he's still finding his way. He's still a developing player. But the point is, getting him back out there will make the operation run smoother than it had been. Some of those offensive line breakdowns that have been driving you crazy and almost put Luke Falk in the hospital, I think those will, some of those, let me stress the word, some will be alleviated by Darnold's presence because he can direct traffic, he can get the players in the right positions, which Luke Falk could not do. If, I, if I'm the coach in this game, I'm riding Le'Veon Bell. I mean, look at the tape last week. Dallas struggled to stop the run against Green Bay. Aaron Jones had four rushing touchdowns. If you're the Jets, you don't want to ask your offensive tackles to block Demarcus Lawrence and Robert Quinn. You want to establish a running game. Maybe use some more tight ends. You saw that in Philly. Adam Gase added a wrinkle to the offense by using multiple tight ends. Obviously, it didn't work against Philly, but you got to try it again against Dallas. Uh, I mean, last week, Jones, he had success running inside and outside against the Dallas and, and I guess Green Bay. And he also caught seven passes. Hmm, a dual threat running back. Sound like anyone we know? Yes, it's Le'Veon Bell. That's why Bell has to be the focal point of this offense. I know he was last week. He touched the ball on the first nine plays, but uh, I think you have to show some diversity. But I would feature Bell again this game. It'll take some of the pressure off Darnold. You don't want him out there throwing the ball 40 times in his first game back. So you want to ease him in slowly. But yes, this is positive news for the Jets. They're facing a Cowboy team that is reeling a bit. They've lost two in a row. I know that's probably cause for panic down in Dallas. Uh, a lot of talk about Jason Garrett's job security, and we'll get into that with Gary in the second quarter. But Dallas is desperate for a win. Uh, this is some, all of a sudden they're back to earth. I mean, everyone thought they were everything after going three and zero, but they played lousy teams to open the season, so they've come back down to earth. Dak Prescott three interceptions last week. I found this stat really interesting. Dak Prescott, he's seventeen and six lifetime versus teams with five hundred records or worse, 
and only five and nine against winning teams. So he is uh, getting a little bit of a comeuppance here. He wasn't as good as he was showing early in the year. And I do think the Jets will give him a little bit of a hard time. Say this about the Jets. Their defense has been doing okay. I think they're ranked 12th in total yardage. Kudos to Greg Williams. He's got these guys playing hard, and he's playing with a lot of backups. We're talking about the entire linebacking core has been second stringers. So I think they will cause some issues for the Cowboys. Do I think the Jets are going to win this game? I, I do not. It's essentially a road game for the Jets because MetLife is going to be three-quarter Cowboy fans. But I do think the Jets will be more competitive. I expect to see progress on offense Adam Gase has to show something here. This is why he was hired. Go into the laboratory, come up with something creative for Darnold and these guys to run and show some progress. And then you got plenty of games to go after that to get things clicking. That is the end of the first quarter. And welcome back to the second quarter. Uh, this is where we invite a special guest in every week. This week, it's a privilege to have my former New York Daily News teammate, an accomplished author, the author of How About Them Cowboys, so appropriate this week with the Cowboys coming to town, playing the Jets on Sunday at MetLife in a late afternoon game, actually. The Jets actually getting the 425 game. Uh, please welcome Gary Myers. Gary, thanks for popping in. I really appreciate it. No problem, Rich. I would say that the Cowboys are getting the late afternoon game. The Jets just happen to be playing them. <laughs> that is true. You, how, how many, uh, if you had to guess, how do you think the stadium will be divided in terms of Cowboy fans versus Jet fans on Sunday? You know, I, I've been to so many Giants-Cowboy games, both at Giant Stadium and at MetLife. And, um, you know, I'd say just a, a rough estimate, I'd say it was like 20% maybe 25% Cowboy fans at those games. And and for such a, a heated rivalry over the years, for that many Cowboy fans to make their way into the building was astounding. And so I would imagine for the for a Jets game, it could be closer to 40% uh, if Jet fans are bailing out on the team already and selling their tickets. Yeah, well, maybe the news that Sam Darnold is starting again, maybe that'll get some Jet fans to keep their tickets this week. But you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of Cowboy fans in attendance. Man, the Cowboys are an interesting team. They started off great 3-0. and Now they're on a two-game losing streak. Knowing Jerry Jones as well as you do, and we're going to get into that in a second just on all the stuff you got in your book, but knowing him as well as, he do, as you do and the way he handles losing and winning and adversity, is, is, this, is he ready to reach for the panic button in Dallas right now? How do you think he's taking this? No, I, I don't, he's not going to fire um, Jason Garrett uh, during the season. He even said that on his radio show on Tuesday morning. I mean, that's just not going to happen. You know, the Cowboys opened against the Giants with Eli, um, and the Giants obviously are a better team now that Daniel Jones is starting, and then they played Washington and Miami. So their second and third victories came against teams that have yet to win a game. So their three and zero start, you know, everybody was saying, ah, oh, you know, Dak's throwing nine touchdowns and and he's he's making more money on his soon to be signed contract each week. And now, you know, they play in New Orleans, which is a tough place to play with or without Breeze. And the Saints defense played defense played great. And then they never beat Aaron Rodgers, especially in Dallas. And, and they they played really poorly for three and a half quarters on Sunday. Now everybody wants to. It's talking about, well, Prescott's losing money every week, and is Jason Garrett going to be the second coach to be fired during the season? Rich, I've been covering this for such a long time and never before, and it gets worse every year, but everybody takes the temperature of every team and every coach on a week-to-week basis, and they're trying to make long-term decisions based on short-term results, and in the NFL that just doesn't work. And so that's my long way of saying that Jason Garrett may not be back next year, but I would be shocked if he doesn't make it through the entire season. Yeah, what's the end game there with Jerry? Because he didn't extend his contract after last season, so Jason is a lame duck coach. His contract ends at the end of this year. What do you think he has to do to get a new deal? Well, this happened in 2014, and he made him coach out the last year of his contract. The Cowboys won the NFC East. And and that was the year that I believe that was the year of Des Bryant's 
controversial catch, no catch in Green Bay. Right. And so that inspired the Cowboys. I mean, I can't say hanging, you know, uh, Garrett out to dry that year and making him coach for his job inspired the Cowboys, but they did win the division. And I would have to say there's some sort of motivation when, when your owner doesn't extend you. And so I, I think the end game here, Rich, is, you know, Jerry Jones loves Jason Garrett um, to the point that I'm almost surprised that Garrett doesn't have a bedroom in the Jones house. Yeah, he does. He we don't know. <laughs> and, you know, Jason lets Jerry be Jerry. You know, sitting on staff meetings and all that kind of stuff and, and never feels that the owner is intruding. Um, and, and Jerry is very comfortable with, with Jason and, and wanted Jason to be his Tom Landry, you know, to be there for 25 years or whatever. Um, but the results haven't been there. And there's a lot of pressure in Dallas or a lot of uh, unhappy Cowboy fans who would like to see a, a change in coaching staff because you seem to get the same results every year. So I think that Jason not only has to make the playoffs this year, but I would think that he'd have to get the Cowboys to the cha- conference championship game to keep his job. And the Cowboys haven't been that deep into the playoffs since 1995, which was the last year they won the Super Bowl. Right. Man, could you imagine uh, if they lose to the Jets on Sunday, what it might be like? I mean, that's... Oh my God! I mean, then Jerry might have to go back on what he said about not firing. Yeah, that that would be a rough one for the Cowboys to take. But uh, you know, you were saying before, Rich, you were saying before the good news is that Darnold will give you back, but the bad news is so is the offensive line. Yeah, oh my, <laughs> that's uh, so many fans on Twitter are like, why are the Jets playing Darnold? You know, he's he, they're going to get him killed. And uh, well, I think the doctors know what they're doing, and and they're they feel he's okay to play. He yeah. did he did practice last week. He'll get another week of practice, and it's time for him to go. And I I do think his presence will help the offensive line clean up some of their issues. But um, the book is called "How About Them Cowboys." It's inside the huddle with the stars and legends of America's team, and and Gary does a great job. There's so many so much entertaining stuff here. The Cowboys are like the longest running soap opera in the NFL, it seems like. And, I mean, you had great access to Jerry Jones. I'm wondering if you could just share. And he was very cooperative, right? The entire Jones family was very cooperative as yes. you, as you uh, battled, uh, undertook this, this venture. What uh, what kind of access did you have to him? And describe how, how you guys got along to put this together. Well, um, the first access I had to him, and at the time I wasn't sure I was going to be turning it into a book, um, it was a few years ago. I met with him when he was in New York for some NFL meetings. Uh, so I met with him in his suite at his hotel, and I wound up doing a story for the Daily News um, when I was still working there. And, you know, I used to, I was with him for about two hours because there's no such thing as a short conversation with Jerry. With Jerry. And um, so, you know, I saved that interview, and I only used, you know, maybe a third of what he had told me that day for the from my newspaper story and um and then um you know I, I i would talk to him every now and then once i decided i was doing the book but the major interview i actually did with him for the book was on the phone because with his schedule and that was the year they was involved with the zeke elliott suspension and trying to challenge goodell's contract we just couldn't carve out a time for me to come down to dallas and speak to him in his office so on a, on a Saturday morning, he actually calls me as I'm walking into the press conference when the Giants were announcing Pat Shermer as the head coach. And I've been waiting like four months to get together with him, and he calls me as I'm walking into this press conference that I couldn't miss. Right. So um, I asked him, I, I said, can I call you back in an hour? And, and it was a Friday afternoon, and he said, well, how about um, call me at home at noon tomorrow? And he gives me his home number. Mm. And so from it, in my home office, Rich, you can just picture this. Like I said, Jerry, can you can give him a question. He just goes forever. Right. Um, I put my tape recorder and my phone on the desk, put my feet up on the desk, asked Jerry a question. I mean, I was listening intently to his answers in case I had follow-up questions to it on a subject. But I just asked him a question and let him go. Mm-hmm. And he was amazing. And about two hours later, because two hours is like the cutoff with Jerry, he starts repeating himself. 
I just said, listen, it's a Saturday. You know, I, I hate to monopolize your whole day. You know, maybe we can pick this up later. And, I mean, he was so gracious and really forthcoming and entertaining and funny with self-deprecating in his stories that um, he, he was just great. And that's why I think it, it shows in the book with some of the anecdotes that I wrote about that he, he was just really taking me inside the meeting rooms and 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 really opening up and um it, you know it helped that i was working in dallas in 1989 when he bought the team and i was there for a few months um before i moved back to new york so i got to know him then and you know of all the people covering the nfl now i know him longer than anybody mm-hmm. and uh and I, you know as you know rich relationships pay off in this business and um i've always had a good one with him I love the – to me, one of the most fascinating NFL dynamics in recent history was the uh, Jerry Jones-Bill Parcells marriage. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, talk about a couple of egos, right? And you you had a great – like you said, behind the scenes, I felt like I was in the draft room or in at least in Parcells' office when that exchange going into the draft where they picked uh, DeMarcus Ware and right. just – I was – I was kind of taken aback. They were f-bombing each other, Parcells and Jerry Jones, but you know because they were disagreeing on how to proceed with that draft. Can you take us inside that room and and how that dynamic worked? Yeah, the the morning of that draft, um, uh, Bill was actually meeting with Stephen Jones, Jerry's son, who was the head of personnel, and with Jeff Ireland, who was very involved in the college draft and. Uh, the Cowboys had two number one picks that year. I think it was, was it 05? Um, something like that. And everybody but Parcells wanted to take the Marcus Ware with the first of the number one picks. Bill wanted to take, um, Marcus Spears. Uh, Ware was going to be a converted linebacker and, and play defensive end. And Bill didn't want to take a player who had a new position that high in the draft. He wanted to take Spears, who was a true defensive tackle. Well, anyhow, the vote was however many to one and bill was outnumbered and told Stephen as they broke up this meeting. Well, and this was when the draft I think started around, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time on a Saturday. And he told Stephen he wasn't going to show up for the draft. Uh, if they weren't going to take Spears with the first two number ones. And Stephen says, well, do what you have to do. He calls his father. He says, dad, I think we have a problem. The coach isn't going to show up for the draft. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Bill was usually at the draft an hour, an hour and a half before it started. And, um, and, and he walks in 20 minutes before the draft opened up and he, he sat down next to Jerry, but didn't say a word to him. And then when I, I think the Cowboys were picking like 12th or 13th, something like that. And then they, they took, uh, they they took Demarcus Ware and, and and Bill's got this long look on his face and then he says to Jerry, you know, um, hey, he's a good player, you know, he'll be fine. And then when the, the second number one pick came around, Marcus Spears was still on the board, so they took him there to make Bill happy. <laughs> so Bill couldn't complain because he got the player he wanted anyway. But um, the F bombing came in, you know, prior to the draft when. Um, Bill was talking to Stephen, and and he was saying, "You're just like the you know the effing craps." Um, yeah, you say one thing and do another, and that really struck a nerve with Stephen. So that's when they st- they they were going back and forth uh, pretty good. But you know the the really funny part about this, Rich, is that so Bill after they take where Bill is sitting next to. Uh, to Jerry and he writes out this contract as if it's like this real legal uh, document in which he says, you know, in in DeMarcus Ware's first two years, if he doesn't have 20 sacks, uh, coach gets to use owners, like said coach gets to use said owner's plane, you know, for private trips, um, three times in a calendar year or something like that. Right, right. Um, and so he pushes the document over to, to Jerry, and Jerry starts laughing at it. And Jerry goes, and he answered, but if if said player gets 20 sacks in the first two years, then said owner gets to take three trips 
with said coach's girlfriend <laughs> over the next calendar year. Yeah. <laughs> so that they they got to you know they really did enjoy each other. And you're right, that was an interesting dynamic. But you know, uh, history has shown that the Cowboys were really right on that one. DeMarcus Ware, uh, you know, is you know potential Hall of Fame player, and Marcus Spears was just kind of an ordinary player. Yeah, I think it worked out. He was the 11th pick in uh, 2005, and he made nine Pro Bowls, four All Pros, had 138 career sacks. So I yeah, and, I and won, I won a Super Bowl with the uh, Broncos. So I think I think it's pretty safe. I think he'll be in Canton. So that pick worked out. The pick that didn't work out, one that they did not make. I'm sure they're grateful they didn't. How close yeah. did they come to picking Johnny Manziel? Well. I mean, it came about as close as can be if Jerry had decided that his voice was the only one that counted. It, it, just for argument's sake, if there were 15 people in the draft room that day, 14 of them did not want to take Johnny Manziel, and, and Jerry was the only one who did. He was in love with Manziel. He thought he was going to be the, a, a natural successor to Tony Romo. He was from Texas. He'd be a local hero. He'd keep the Cowboys brand relevant. I mean, he just loved everything about him. And everybody else in the room hated him. And they just didn't want any part of him. And as the Cowboys were on the clock, Jerry basically went around the room and and was pleading with anybody else to agree with him. Mm-hmm. And as he's doing that, Stephen instructed, um, um, I'm not sure who actually called in the pick to New York, but he instructed the person to call the pick in and it was Zach Martin. And, and, and Jerry said, well, you know, before we make our final decision and and Stephen goes, it's too late. I've already phoned the pick in. It's Zach Martin. And, uh, and Jerry slapped Stephen so hard on the leg that it actually was audible throughout the draft room. I mean, he really slapped him hard and he, he got in his ear and he said, son, let me tell you something. You know, I didn't get to be where I am in life by playing things down the middle. And you just played this right down the middle by taking the safe pick. And if that's the way you're going to live your life, you'll never be a success. Wow. And, and Stephen, who idolizes his father, was, was I can't say he was nearly brought to tears because that might be a little dramatic, but he was really, really hurt by that. And he thought he was just making the call that was best for the organization. And again, you know, just as the case with Parcells and not wanting to Marcus Ware, Stephen turned out to be, and the, and the scouts turned out to be 100% right because, you know, Martin has gone on, you know, injuries aside, to be one of the best guards in the NFL where Johnny Manziel, you know, I'm not exactly sure where he is today. The last time he surfaced, he, I think he played a game in the Alliance League before it folded, and um, I'm not sure he's going to get a chance in the XFL, but we've probably, we might have seen the last of Manziel. So if Jerry got his way, Johnny Manziel, no questions asked, would have been uh, the, the Cowboys' number one pick that year. Wow. And, yeah, they took Zach Martin at 16, and, of course, you know, I think he's he's made six, uh, five or six Pro Bowls. He'll probably end up in, know, other, in Canton, too. Yeah, the other thing I was going to tell you is that the three players the Cowboys wanted in that draft, even ahead of Zach Morton, they wanted a defensive player. And the three guys they had listed, and they had them right, was Anthony Barr, Aaron Donald, and Ryan Shazier. Barr went in the top ten, if I remember right. I think Donald was like 12, something like that. And then Shazier went to the Steelers on the pick right before the Cowboys, which is what created this whole... Right. A drama in, in the Cowboys draft room is that all three of their players were taken before they could pick. So then they had an audible, and um, that's where the argument came in. Yeah, and Baltimore actually took C.J. Mosley right after Zach Martin, so that turned out to be a good pick. And then the Jets took Calvin Pryor at 18, and that's another that's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Calvin Pryor did not work out, even though Rex Ryan compared him to Jack Tatum after the draft. But uh, yeah, The Louisville Slugger. <laughs> the Louisville Slugger. Uh, they whiffed on the Louisville Slugger. So, uh, <laughs> But that, you know, fascinating what-if story. You know, if the, if the Cowboys take Manziel, who knows how – Things would be different. I mean, that's just crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, you 
covered the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News for a long, long time. And uh, I know you had a, a special relationship with Tom Landry and covered that era when the Cowboys were really just, you know, you know, jumping on the scene as America's team. And I think you were, you were there the day after he was fired, which, of course, is one of the biggest firings in sports history. I mean, how could you fire Tom Landry? But they did. And there was a can you describe that, Garrett, just that point poignant scene of, of the day after you and Landry? Yeah, he um, he was down in Austin. We called it the Saturday Night Massacre. February 25th, 1989, Jerry Jones flew to Austin with Tech Schramm right after he had signed the papers to buy the team, and he wanted to um, tell Landry in person. And you, can't, you can't blame Jerry. He was buying the team with every penny that he had, and he wanted his own coach. And the city of Dallas is always very hypocritical here because they've been calling for Landry to retire or be fired for years. And then they get this outsider from Arkansas that comes in and buys the team and does exactly what they want. And there was kind of a revolt against Jones early on. But anyhow, so Tom, Tom flew his own plane. And I went to the um, small airport in North Dallas, which wasn't far from where I was living, the next morning, thinking he was going to fly back. So I staked out the airport for a while. And then I went, to, he, he must have come back really, really early. And I went to his house and sat outside his house for about an hour and a half. And I figured the only other place he could be, assuming he was already back, was at the Cowboy offices. And um, they were out of Valley Ranch in those days, and uh, all the writers had uh, the code that you punch in to get into the building. And then once you were in the building, you, you had free reign. So I just walked to his office. Wow. I mean, can you imagine that today? You know, you just walk into a building and walk to the head coach's office. Not happening today. <laughs> that would never happen. They, they pretty much have a metal detector now. The last even in the building. Exactly. And so I walk to his office, and his secretary sitting there, who, who I'd known for the eight years I was in Dallas, and Tom's door was open a little bit. And, and David Moore, who worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, then and now covers the Cowboys for the morning news, so he's been doing this forever. Uh, he was with me, and we had actually been staking out Tom's house at the same time and then independently decided to drive to Valley Ranch. So his secretary says, you know, I'm sorry, you know, uh, Coach Landry is busy, and he heard my voice, and he yelled, oh, Barbara, you know, let them in. Mm. And so David and I sat with Landry for probably a good 45 minutes, and he's there in a flannel shirt and a pair of, uh, slacks and uh, no fedora on his head. Didn't wear that. That's on game day. Right. And, and Rich, he was like anybody else who had lost their job. He was there with big boxes in his office, in, in, you know, sitting by his desk, cleaning out his desk, lamenting that he had 30 years of memories in those drawers and why didn't he clean out his drawers earlier? And um, he had a, a, a custom made door that had um, the Cowboys two Super Bowl trophies uh, carved out in the door that somebody was taking down huh. and he had some workers there as he finished filling up boxes you know putting it in the trunk of his car and it was like you said it was a very poignant scene that it wasn't lost on me at the time that I was sitting in on history because like you said you know probably the most famous sports firing uh, in in history and to be sitting there as this man this dignified man is sitting is sitting behind his desk you know putting folders and books and boxes and packing up 29 years of memories remember he's the only coach the cowboys had ever had to that point right it, it was just it was an amazing thing and, and uh, even though now it, you know it's 30 years ago it's still very fresh in my mind and just you know, I can close my eyes and just see Tom sitting behind the desk there, and and me thinking, "Boy, I'm gonna, I got. If I don't screw this up, I got a really good story." <laughs> wow! Well, if that happened today, you might have been live tweeting it as it was happening. That's how. <laughs> that's how how things have changed. But uh, wow, I can't. That's a, that's a great great story, and I'm I'm just like I have that in my mind. Like I have that that image in my mind, and it's just hard to believe that. Uh, you know, I, I really like Tom a lot. He was different than any coach I've ever dealt with before. Since he, 
he was to the point. He would never really say, you know, how's your family or, you know, what's going on with you or anything like that. But I, I felt like um, the Landry that um, people saw on the sidelines wasn't really him. He was a really strong family man. He never slept in his office. He'd always be home in time to have dinner with his wife and then go to his his office in his house and watch film for a few hours. Um, after uh, he was fired, I stayed in touch with him and saw him a few times over the years. And that's when he was more like, you know, I had just gotten married and he was asking about you know, where I was living in New York because he was familiar with the area, having been with the Giants and asking, you know, if I had any kids yet and things like that. I, I found him, I never found him cold before, but he was just much warmer once he left the Cowboys. And uh, I, I really enjoyed him a lot. And I felt like if I went through eight years and never raised his voice to me, then uh, then there was never an excuse for any coach to ever get mad at me because, believe me, I wrote enough things that probably ticked him off and he he never showed it. And, um I just I really learned a lot by being around him. Yeah, and of course you you know you got a chance to know Jimmy Johnson who comes in and you know takes over basically a train wreck and turns them into uh, Super Bowl champions, a dynasty. And you know what was Jimmy like? And also, I know you you had some great stuff in the book on just uh, a recent meeting of him and Troy Aikman, which in in its own way was kind of poignant in itself about what the old what might have been storyline. Yeah, I got to know Jimmy a little bit before um, I moved back to New York, but I, I really got to know him well when he was coaching the Cowboys because I'd be down there a lot doing stories for the Daily News. And my all-time favorite Jimmy story is, um, I think it was in 92 that the Cowboys just demolished the Giants in a Thanksgiving game in which Kent Graham started, and he was a rookie, and Dave Brown, a rookie, came in the fourth quarter, and the Giants uh, and the Cowboys were up by like four touchdowns, and they were blitzing Dave Brown. <laughs> and so the following year before they played, a lot of the Giants were complaining about Jimmy running up the score on them and, and, um, and being – you know, okay, you do that stuff when you're at the University of Miami, you don't do that in the NFL, and really complaining about it. So I see Jimmy in the locker room, and I had been there down there for about two or three days, and he says, hey, uh, come into my office for a minute. And I, I thought, I, you know, you're getting called to the principal's office. Yeah. And um, he says, I, I saw the stories in your paper about the Giants complaining about us last year. And he, Rich, he went on an all-time rant. They're a bunch of crybabies. None of those guys can ever play for me. You know, wow. this just I mean, it was amazing. And all I kept thinking, and I had this story completely to myself. Mm. And I'm thinking, all I'm doing is picturing the headline, the Daily News, the next day. You know, and, it, and the, the, you know, our desk guys did not disappoint me. You know, they, they had crybabies or Jimmy Rips Giants calls them a bunch of babies or something like that. I mean, he was great. Yeah. I mean, he was so entertaining, and uh, even though I was no longer living in Dallas, you know, he gave me a lot of stuff. He was helpful to me when I had my HBO, was doing the show on HBO, and he'd feed me information, and, you know, he wound up working with us for two years at HBO between the Cowboys and when he went down to um, coach in Miami. But the story you were referring to, he met with Aikman about five, six years ago. And, you know, they both work for Fox, so they probably see each other sure. frequently. And and Troy never forgave Jimmy for not being able to work things out with Jerry. They just won the Super Bowl back-to-back. They had the best young talent in the league. And I, I really believe they could have won four or five in a row. They were that good and they were that young. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy just had enough of Jerry, and Jerry had enough of Jimmy, and they just divorced, and they brought in Switzer who Aikman had started his college career with at Oklahoma, then he broke his leg. And when he came back, he decided he wasn't going to have a regular pro passing game anymore. He was going to go to the wishbone. And I think it was Jamil Holloway was the Oklahoma quarterback, and Troy transferred to UCLA, and he never gave, gave Switzer. So when of all the coaches that Jerry could have hired, he hired Switzer, the one guy that Troy really hated. And there was no discipline on the team. So anyhow, five years ago, or so they're sitting and having a beer, and um, 
and this is before the most recent of the uh, Patriots championships. And Troy says to Jimmy, you know, we could have been Brady and Belichick. Mm. And Jimmy basically said to him, I don't care. I wasn't happy. And if I'm not happy, I'm not staying someplace. And he goes, I, and, you know, and Jimmy's the one that told me his story. Right. And I, I said, you've never had any regrets about leaving. I mean, all that talent you accumulated, it was going to be, it was the start of free agency, but he was going to be able to keep the team together for at least a couple more years. You know, you had Emmett and Troy and Michael, all very young, and all those great young defensive players. And he said he never regretted it. He doesn't live his life like that. And he was just so unhappy in Dallas. You know, Jerry was so unhappy with him that he gave him a $2 million check to leave. And the Cowboys really have not been the same since Jimmy, despite the fact that Parcells was there for four years. Right. Parcells you know, made the playoffs twice in Dallas, but didn't win a playoff game. So that just shows how special uh, Jimmy was during his time in Dallas and building it basically from scratch. And before I let you know, uh, let you go, Gary, I want to ask you one question uh, topical mm-hmm. here in New York. Uh, as many people know, you covered the NFL for a long time for the Daily News. You contribute to The Athletic now. And so you know the New York landscape as well as anyone. What the hell is wrong with the Jets? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is they had their starting quarterback for one game, and I mean, I'm no doctor, but chances are he probably had mono for the onset of it for that game because they they announced it like two days later, right? Um, and and the Jets obviously didn't know about it, otherwise he wouldn't have played in that game. So, and then they lost Trevor Simeon, who was just an you know an average backup, but at least he was a professional backup. They lose him in the first half of his first game, so they've been playing with a quarterback who shouldn't even be in the NFL. Um, they haven't had their tight end. They haven't had their number one receiver. And they got a crummy offensive line. And so they've, you, you, you put that circumstance with any team, and they're going to have trouble moving the ball. No less scoring. They just have trouble moving the ball. So I, I, would, I picked the Jets to go 9-7 and seven and be a wild card team this year. So I'm, I mean, I'm looking pretty dumb, but I, I didn't anticipate – you know, Sam Donald only playing one of the first, you know, four games and 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 they're having such trouble offensively. I would say this that in give Donald the cowboy game on Sunday to kinda of get his bearings back and his conditioning and, and all that. And if they don't start doing better the week after, then there's a real issue. But I, I almost write Rich, I almost write off the first four games because of of the short, you know, there's been so short-handed. And I know people are really down on Adam Gase and yeah. all that, and you know, saying that any coach could have produced more offense under those. Stars. I don't, I, mean, I don't really know about that. Yeah. Um. So they're a mess right now, but I don't really think this is truly indicative of the team that they have. And they've been without Mosley, and I mean, you know better than anybody how the defense fell apart in the first game once Mosley got hurt. And, and they gave those two touchdowns in the fourth quarter to Buffalo, and they lost that game. I, I just think that there's everything that could have gone wrong in the first month or so of the season for the Jets, in typical Jets fashion, it went wrong. Yeah, and Adam and, Adam Gase well, is like so unlucky when it comes to quarterbacks. He he didn't oh have Tannehill God. for half the time in Miami. Now he comes to the Jets. It's like Gase's lack of luck combined with the Jets star cross history you put them together it's like the perfect the perfect storm here that's what's I mean, who, who they scored one offensive touchdown so far something like that uh two 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 we can't shortchange oh, them that one touch that, that one touchdown um yeah. two and four games is not exactly the kansas city chiefs offense but uh, i agree with you i mean there's a lot of circumstances going on and i think going forward now with darnold is is the time to uh It'll be it'll be more of a accurate barometer of what Adam Gase is and what this team is going forward. Right. I, I thought the Jets' whole season was really going to be measured by, uh, and, and I know there's a lot of excitement going into the season, and people other than myself thought they had potential to make the playoffs. But this season was really all about, you know, Gase's ability as a coach to develop Donald in his second year. There's been plenty of cases recently. Uh, we're a quarterback in his second year, 
with a new coach, you know, with McVeigh, with uh, Jared Goff, and and Matt Nagy with um, Trubisky, taking over those quarterbacks in their second year, and they're making big leaps. And that's what we kind of expected with Gase and Donald. And um, I'd say by the end of the year, if we've seen a lot, a lot of improvement in Donald, then all this pain of the first four or five weeks of the season uh, will have been worth it. And if, if, if Sam hadn't gotten sick, and only, he's the only one that really knows how much that impacted him in the Buffalo game. Right. But if he hadn't gotten sick this year, the, the, I don't think – I mean, I know the Jets wouldn't have looked so inept on offense through the first month of the season. I mean, they're, they're rich. They're playing a guy who probably doesn't even deserve to be on a practice squad, and he's been playing the last two and a half games. Yeah. I mean, who can operate like that? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough for sure. But I agree with everything we said. You know, at the end of the year, if Darnold, if the arrow is pointing way up, then, yep. you know, that, that'll be that'll be the key. Not so much the wins and losses. But uh, anyway, the book is called How About Them Cowboys? It's a great inside look at America's team. If you're a Cowboys fan, you definitely have to get it. Even if you're just a football fan or a sports fan and you like reading about a lot of behind-the-scenes drama, then you want to pick this up. Uh, thanks to my good friends, Gary. Gary, I can't thank you enough for stopping in and talking Cowboys this week with Jets and Cowboys. I really, really appreciate it. And, Rich, I, my prediction is somewhere between now and the end of the season, um, the Jets will win a game. Well, uh, you sure about that? Well, they do play the Dolphins twice, so we got that. We got that. But uh, I think they'll win a few. We'll see. We'll check back later in the year. Garrett, thanks so much, Garrett. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Take care. Time for mailbag questions from Twitter. Let's jump right into it with at, at Root413. What's the insider assessment of Quinn and Williams? Uh, he may develop into a solid player, but he doesn't appear to be the best player in the draft. He does not appear to be the next Aaron Donald, and he looks more like Mo Wilkerson. Whoa, let's stop right there. He is not Mo Wilkerson, and I agree, he's probably not Aaron Donald either, but you can't judge a player after, he's only played six quarters so far, and I granted, he hasn't done anything that really stood out, but, uh, I, let's not, throw him into the Wilkerson category just yet. I, I do think there's still a lot of upside there. Next question from at Marco 518. Had the Jets drafted Josh Allen and Chase Winovich, would they be in appreciably a better situation right now? Well, I don't think they would have drafted both those guys because they essentially play the same position. But uh, I did not argue. I thought they should have drafted Josh Allen because he's an edge rusher and they were desperate for an edge rusher, but they went for Quinn and Williams. Okay, fine. But in the third round, they really blew it. They should have taken Chase Winovich instead of Ja'Kai Polite, who will be remembered as one of the all-time busts. Winovich already uh, has three sacks. He's one of the best uh, rookie pass rushers. Uh, I don't think it would have changed the Jets' fortunes much, but it definitely would have helped them in the future, no doubt. Next question from at Jeremy Ciatola. Jamal Adams seems to have checked out since the Browns game when it was Benchgate. Any plans to um, uh, any plans for him uh, trading him for a, a big haul of draft picks? No, uh, Jeremy. I don't think the Jets want to trade Jamal Adams. I do. Uh, I don't think the word "checked out" is fair. He's still playing well. You saw that against the Eagles. Um, but there has been a change in his demeanor, though, at least in terms of dealing with the media. He seems a little bit more subdued. I do think there is something there. I do think there's something bothering him. It's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. The next question comes from at Sark Musco. Why doesn't Gase take more of a hit for choosing Falk as his third string quarterback? And Sark, I agree with you there. While I don't blame Gase so much for what's happened to the offense in the first four games, I do think he should take some of the hit because he picked Falk as his third-string guy, and he's supposed to be a quarterback expert, and clearly Falk doesn't have any qualities that would make you think he could develop into something. And so, yes, that to me was a poor personnel decision by Adam Gase, and uh, that is a good question. Next one is from at film speed 84. Uh, he goes, I have a personal question as someone who's interested in journalism. After 31 years on the beat, does it ever feel like punishment to you having to cover this historically dysfunctional franchise 
as opposed to a regular Super Bowl contender. Film speed, I would say it's never punishment. Uh, I think I'm really lucky to be doing what I'm doing because very few people get to uh, to be in this position. So it's never punishment to cover the Jets, no matter how bad they are. And they've been pretty bad lately. But to me, it's like a never-ending story, you know, with a lot of twists and turns in the road. And you never know what might come up next with the Jets. That's one of the things that always keeps them fascinating and an ongoing soap opera. So, no, it's not punishment. And uh, in some ways, it's more interesting to cover a dysfunctional franchise than, a, like, a, say, the Patriots. So it just depends on your perspective. But thanks for that question. Next question comes from at ENT. Why not? Why didn't Gase ever go after Brock Osweiler as soon as Trevor Simeon went down? Yeah, I thought it was uh, short-sighted. The Jets should have realized at that point that they needed a uh, experienced quarterback as a backup once Simeon went down. Osweiler, of course, played with Gase in Miami. He knows the system. I thought that would have been a good way to go because at least he's won games in the league. I mean, let's not call Brock Osweiler the second coming, but at least he's won games in the league. He would have been better than Luke Fox. So, uh, yeah, I do, I do question that personnel decision. And, um, next question. Our last question comes from at J underscore bird 44. My question is whether the high number of sacks are at least partially due to the quarterback's indecision. Thanks and go orange. Of course, you know, I have to get a Syracuse orange question in there. And I think I, that's probably why J bird has 44 at the end of his uh, handle. And yes, the answer is yes. I think the quarterback's indecision definitely plays into the sacks. I studied the tape of the Jets-Eagles game, and I counted at least three sacks where Falk's ability or inability to deliver the ball on time resulted in a sack. So that's three out of the nine sacks. And so, yes, the quarterback has to think quickly. He has to process information and decide what he wants to do with the ball. Falk. I mean, look, I'm not blaming the guy. It was only a second career start, but he was not going uh, in, into the plays quickly. And another thing that you, if you watch closely, they're breaking the huddle late with Falk, and he's getting to the line of scrimmage with under 15 seconds left. And that's when the uh, helmet radio shuts off. So Gase does not have the ability to communicate with him at that point. And I think that hurt the Jets, too. He's having trouble getting the plays out in the huddle. So I think that also has an effect. He's not reading the blitz like a Sam Darnold would. And so you put it all together. The offensive line takes all the heat, but there are definitely some other factors that go into it. And that is the end of the third quarter. This is the Red Zone, my open forum to uh, opine on anything I see fit. Uh, this week, it's the Cowboys. And uh, the Jets don't have a long history against the Cowboys. They're four and seven, so they've only played 11 times. They've actually won the last two. But the games that I really remember, man, I covered. There was that Thanksgiving game in 2007 was at the old Texas Stadium, which, by the way, was a total dump. And the Jets go in there on Thanksgiving Day. They're a lousy team, and they get blown out 34 to three. And I'll never forget, I went up to Jericho Cotri after the game, one of the nicest most mild-mannered guys I've ever covered, just a true gentleman. And I said, you know, Jericho, the entire country was watching this game on Thanksgiving. What do you think America takes away from this game about the Jets? And he looked at me and he said, he goes, well, I think we told America that we suck. <laughs> and I was kind of taken aback by that coming out of Jericho's mouth. There was another time in 93 when the Jets played the Jets. They played the Cowboys at home. The Jets were 8-5. and five. And they were, you know, there was a lot of hope. They were in the playoff race, but the Cowboys were in the midst of their dynasty, you know, Aikman and Emmett and those guys. And the Jets just got smacked. They lost 28 to seven. And the next day, Bruce Coslett is talking to the media and Coslett basically comes right out and says, we just don't have the talent to compete with teams like that, you know, with the top teams. And so word gets around quickly, you know, because we're asking players, hey, your coach just said you guys don't have the top talent. I mean, this is unheard of, of a coach whose team is still in the playoff race coming out publicly and saying, we're just not good enough. And Coslett, you know, he had a lot of uh, a foot and mouth problem. You know, he did that a lot. He was kind of a wise guy who liked to talk. And I'll never forget this later in the day, about five or six o'clock in the afternoon, everyone's working on their laptops. 
in the press room. The door bursts open. Bruce Coslett comes in. He's got this cigarette in his mouth. The ash was so low. He's about to fall out. And he starts yelling at us, actually pleading with us not to write his comments from the press conference, he said, because he didn't mean it to come out that way. And he's begging us not to write that he basically was waving the white flag. And I've never told that story before, but, you know, back in those days, he had a chance to do that. Now it would be on Twitter right away. It'd be going viral. And of course it would be out there. But back then the stuff didn't come out till the next morning in the paper. So he thought he had a chance to preempt us. And of course we didn't listen to him because journalistically you would never do that. So we actually printed our stories the next day. And I think that really pissed off the Jets general manager, who, by the way, a couple of weeks later ended up firing Bruce Coslett. But I'll never forget that the door bursting open and him trying to be the tough guy and then all of a sudden pleading with us to not write that. And uh, the Jets, I do not believe, won another game the rest of that year. And Coslett was no more. And the other thing I'll be looking forward to on Sunday it's the uh, the Jets are honoring their all time team in conjunction with the NFL 100. So you'll see the all-time Jets out there on the field. They were voted on by the fans. I've been pretty vocal about this. I thought it was a glaring omission that Kevin o- Kevin Mawai, who's a, a pro football Hall of Famer, was not on the team. I have nothing against Nick Mangold, who's a terrific center. I want him on my team any day of the week. But, you know, Mawai is in the Hall of Fame. And I thought the other oversight was not having Larry Grantham on it. He's one of the all-time great Jets, you know. I think he made like 10 all-star games in the old AFL. He was the captain on defense in their Super Bowl three team. He did not make it on that team. So, yeah, we could nitpick on a few other guys, but I thought Mawai and Larry Grantham should have been out there. Larry, of course, passed away several years ago, but uh, I know his family is – I know I do know his family, and I know they would have been really, um, really honored to have him on that team. So that's unfortunate. But uh, Mawai will be back the following week because the Jets are honoring him for his Hall of Fame induction uh, during halftime of the Jets-Patriots uh, game on Monday night. So Kevin will get some moment in the spotlight. To me, though, the sad thing is on Sunday to have an 0-4 team in a stadium that's going to be half-filled with Cowboy fans honoring their all-time team. So that is not the ideal circumstance for for honoring the best of your best, but such as it is right now. But I still think it'll be cool to see all those guys like Namath and Curtis Martin and Don Maynard and Wayne Krebet all out there at the same time. Um, you know, that's when I, I really like that sort of stuff. And I think the Jets are doing a cool thing by bringing them back. I just wish it could have been maybe in a different environment. And maybe if they had a winning record, it would have made it a lot more fun as well. But that's the end of the show, a Cowboy-centric show. I want to thank my guest, Gary Myers, author of How About Them Cowboys, for coming in. And sharing some great stories that, you know, from Tom Landry to Jimmy Johnson, all the way up to Jerry Jones. Some great stuff from Gary. I'd like to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, for doing a great job. And don't forget, please subscribe to Flight Deck. You can get it wherever podcasts are found. Thanks once again for stopping in. Stay tuned for the rest of the year. The Jets might be losing, but we'll still crank these things out and put out some pretty interesting content. So thanks for staying with us. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.